today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks, I'm with Dominic Jones, Senior Design Manager for Eco-Cart at Amazon. I'm Kevin Perlmutter, Chief Strategist and Founder of Limbic Brand Evolution, a brand strategy and neuromarketing consultancy that taps into emotional insight to strengthen connections between brands and people. The limbic system part of our brain supports emotion, motivation, behavior, and memory. And I'm curious how my guests are creating what I call limbic sparks, which happen when emotional motivation meets brand desire. I love talking with brand leaders who are turning emotional insight into a competitive advantage to drive business growth for the brands that they serve. Dominic, thank you so much for joining me today. And let's talk limbic sparks. Well, thanks, Kevin. Um, I'm excited to be here. I'm so glad you are. And I'm fascinated by the work that you do, and I'm so ready for this conversation. But first, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. You have such a fascinating background to me, and it crosses so many different disciplines, marketing strategy, insights, customer experience, user experience, product design. And I'm curious, at a personal level, what motivates you and ties together these interests that you have? Um, that's a that's an interesting question. So, I think that um, you know at 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 the heart of, of what I've always been excited by as a um, as a designer is really understanding and um, learning about people, um, finding ways to tap in to those kind of fundamental desires and uh, perspectives uh, that they have. Really, kind of getting under the their skin to see what kind of drives. And and motivates them. So you know, doing that uh, that that ethnographic research, that quantitative research, um, tapping into kind of analytics and and tying all those different data points uh, together, so that we can get a a picture of what's going to drive someone to want to do something, and then um, allowing us to kind of build a a framework, a system around that, that allows them to, um, or allows us to more effectively accelerate the, the adoption of a, uh, of a product, a brand or a, or, or a service. Wow. I love that. And we're going to get, we're going to go deep into that aspect of the kind of work that you do in this conversation. Uh, and before we go there, I'm kind of curious on a personal level, what qualities do you gravitate toward when it comes to the people who you're closest with? So I've, I've always liked working with people who are inquisitive, but also with people who have very different viewpoints from my own and have uh, different um, kind of areas of expertise. I don't make decisions quickly necessarily. I actually like to hear other people's uh, perspective. I like to um, mull it over somewhat, kind of a little bit like having a, a, a good good glass of wine or something like that, where you kind of think it through and and think of it from uh, think about the problem from a lot of kind of divergent uh, angles and, and debate them, and so that you can really discover those moments of uh, of alchemy where you're kind of bringing different elements together. Um, and it's when you bring those different elements together that you, that, and if you, you can ponder them for, for long enough or carefully enough that you're going to come up with that, um, that moment of kind of true invention in terms of um, developing an experience. 
I think another thing that I've really enjoyed with my, um, with my relationships and my partners with people is working with people who I can work with over a longer period of time. So I'd say that earlier on in my career, I really enjoyed um, the excitement of going from one product or one project to another project. And as time has continued, I've really uh, got to enjoy the opportunity to work with partners, whether they were internal or whether they were agency partners over a long period of time, because that's where we start to be able to track our effectiveness at um, kind of, of communicating with the end consumer, with the user, and to understand um, how they're evolving with the entity that we've created and, and how we can have that long-term kind of relationship with them. So that, that opportunity now is something that I really cherish of being able to uh, work, with, work with, with partners over that kind of long arc of the journey with, with a brand or a product or an experience. Wow, that says so much about how you think and, and what you value to surround yourself with really great people who could bring a different perspective and then work with them over that long period of time. Uh, that's, that's such a, a fascinating way to, to let the ideas come to life and to see things grow over time. That's, that's really neat. I want to ask another question about you and, and, and maybe help the listeners here get to know a little bit more about you. And one way that I like to do that is asking you if you can describe yourself by naming a few brands that paint a picture of who you are and, and what you're about. Funnily enough, having spent so much of my professional career um, helping develop brands and experiences, I, I don't consider myself someone who necessarily thinks of themselves in terms of, of brands or, or branded things very much. Um, what I do like are, are, are experiences that are well orchestrated across touch points and across a variety of touch points and that are really held together with a, a kind of a very strong conceptual underpinning that ties to our, our human experience. And I think that brands that are uh, really successful are all brands that do that. They, they aren't necessarily solving that functional problem, but they're really tapping into those emotional um, needs and desires uh, that the customers have, or, or even tapping into the emotional um, uh, kind of speed bumps, I guess, that are stopping them from adopting uh, an idea or, or using a product or using a service. I came across a, a brand recently that I thought was doing this in a really good way. And, they, and, and, and they had, I, I was able to witness that switch just in, in, um, in terms of what I was working at or what I was having to do in terms of managing my family's uh, health, um, health details with, I think it was a company called Health Equity in which they had a very intimate and personal approach or they switched to a very intimate and personal kind of tone of voice and approach in, in their website and in their, um, 
in their UI. And it really struck me that they had kind of realized how intimidating um, it was for people to manage their finances, to manage their health, and that they needed to find every single uh, tool that they could to make themselves more approachable, to kind of uh, foster a more intimate experience with their, with their customers. And, and it really manifested itself in, in the tone of voice and the, the font and the script, scripted font that they were using on their, on their, um, on their website. I feel like uh, I spent the last nine years at, um, at iRobot and we tried to do something very similar there where we had a, uh, a luxury, a, a product that was really perceived as a, as a luxury gadget um, that was for inquisitive early adopters, but we weren't managing to uh, convert or to attract people who were passionate about cleaning versus people who are passionate about technology. And so we worked very hard at, uh, at finding ways to make the brand approachable, to finding ways to make it meaningful, uh, to finding ways of making it uh, treasured for people so that they really saw us uh, and they saw the brand as a, as a partner with whom they could improve the lives of themselves and, and, and their families as well. When I think of something that I, that, that does spark that desire, I would say um, I've had the opportunity to travel to Japan a lot over the years. And, um, and one of the things that I've loved about going to Japan is the attention to, to detail that they give to, um, to so many elements of, of life and, and, um, and everyday details that in, some, in Western cultures, we, we might pay less or, or no thought to. And so when I go to Japan, it really does feel like I'm um, kind of waking up and experiencing all my senses um, in a different light for the first time. Um, just in the, the way, for example, that, um, that a business card is uh, presented to you where it has to be presented with two hands, it has to be presented the right way around and then you receive the business card in the same way, and and when you put it down on the table, you 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 put it down with care, and you um, you study it a little bit, and it 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 really resonates with me because it 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 kind of communicates a uh, a sense of respect for the other person, or, or a sense that you kind of care about them and that they are important. And I think what's interesting is that. Though it's not a brand, this is a sensibility that is a cultural sensibility that runs through the the lives of of Japanese people, you know. And so I think that that in that way it, it it's working in a similar way in which a in which a brand works as well. In, in that there is a, um, a a code, a structure, a framework around which, and a sensibility around which. Um, around which people operate and that is obviously scalable. When it comes to specific brands that I can think of, I don't use this brand, but my wife uses a Peloton brand, uh, Peloton exercise bike. Um, and I think that they have done a, a really amazing job at, um, at, finding a way 
to make people more engaged with their health, with their fitness. And they haven't done that just by creating a tool for exercise. What they did is they created an environment in which you could feel you were part of a community, um, in which you could engage with other people, that you could have a more intimate and active engagement with uh, various levels of your health and your fitness, where as a community, you could, or an environment, you could keep things interesting by kind of having different trainers, different environments effectively, different modes of exercise, uh, such that it stays interesting and, um, and that it stays, um, and it stays fun. And, and I think that the big success for them is that they've been able to uh, engage people over a longer period of time with their, with their health and keep them engaged. And they've done that through, uh, through all these different elements and making sure that they're working across the touch points, uh, both physically and uh, physical and, and the digital touch points. Peloton's such a great example. And they've created, as you said, they've created such a community through their product, um, a stickiness. People keep coming back, not only for the usage, for the health benefits, uh, for the for the UI, but also for the community and, and the outside interaction. And wow, what they've done over the last couple of years has been uh, pretty pretty incredible to witness. I'm curious about uh, when you think about all of this and when you think about product design, um, what are some of your biggest influences? Are there any specific experiences or other product designers who have shaped your approach to the work that you do? When I think about my influences, I, I think that um, people are always surprised when I tell them that I actually studied to be a furniture designer. Um, I also had a stint of, um, of studying architecture as well before I ended up uh, doing industrial design or at, at the RCA. What I find interesting about furniture, and I think it was a great entry point into the work that I do, is that is that furniture connects with us in, with such a, in such a kind of a visceral and physical way. Um, you know, you sit on it, you can feel it. And so when you think about uh, someone who's cutting their teeth and kind of understanding how to create experiences um, that gel with people, I think furniture design was a, a, great, uh, a great entry point for that. Um, there are also so many cues that you can kind of bring into furniture design, whether it's visual cues of details, of form, of texture, of light. Um, the fact that it has to fit into a, a kind of an environment physically. And then that there are also um, elements uh, that you have to consider economically as well. And then if you look at that history of furniture design, it's always tracked to different technological um, advancements and it's fascinating to see how how it's evolved over time as as technologies have 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 um, changed. After I graduated from the, from the Royal College in industrial design, I I was lucky enough to get my first job in um, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, at a company called Fitch, which um, is now part of WPP, and they were. Um, big enough to hire people like myself who wanted to dig a little bit deeper. And they really were at the forefront 
of design research and customer-centric thinking and of um, being one of those companies that even in, in the 80s was kind of hiring anthropologists, people with kind of ethnographic and, and, and sociology kind of backgrounds and really digging in to understand uh, the motivations of, um, of users and people before they actually put, put pen to paper. So I, I would say that um, that opportunity that I had with, with Fitch early on was really, really important to me. As I've continued my career um, and I've investigated and entered into different domains such as, um, you know, uh, my, my foray into, into marketing research, it's been really great to be able to marry that um, experience that I gained at, at Fitch with um, very different types of thinkers, uh, thinkers who might be delving into data um, that is being generated by the products that are being used, um, where we're getting the data from the, 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 the usage data. Um, uh, collaborators who are um, able to do kind of segmentations for us and run segmentations um, and, and, and then all the collaborators who are at the forefront of um, finding ways really to, to measure the emotional impact of, um, of language or of concepts, et cetera. I'm so thrilled that you started talking about that because I'm very curious about consumer insights and, and how, and I, I could tell from our, oh, I know from our past conversations and I can tell from what you've just said that it plays such an important role in product design. So how are you gaining user experience, understanding and building that into the various stages of product design? The thing that really gets me excited about deciding how we are going to kind of develop a new product or bring a new idea to market really goes back to the idea, that idea of doing uh, the groundwork and the um, in-depth foundational work um, for a product and for most, not so much a product, but for an experience. I've always been a believer that we should think that we're designing activities. We're not necessarily designing products. And so by going into it with that kind of mindset, I think it's probably similar to kind of jobs to be done philosophy, where you are trying to understand, well, what is the context um, within which this product is being used? What are the activities that surround it? Um, how does it influence uh, the rest of that person's life and what are the drivers, the emotional drivers that will um, be kind of trigger points um, for the, the user and the consumer. Doing that work is, is really key. And I think that something that has really stood out to me as being an important element not to forget is to make sure that as you do that work, that you include as many of the stakeholders who will be involved in developing that product as possible. So it's not just about the designers or the researchers doing that work, but ensuring that it's the product managers, that it's the, um, the software uh, people, the engineers, um, even uh, folks from, from, from finance, so that they understand what is that kind of foundational thought 
and underpinning that will drive the development of this experience or this activity or this service or this product. Um, because it's when you can do that, that you can, you know that you have a, a higher likelihood that everyone will be kind of rowing in the same direction as it were and, um, and guided by that same North Star. Yeah, that stakeholder management piece on the inside is so important, especially when you're doing new things, right? Because you have to bring people along so they see the value of what you're creating and are willing to invest in the things that are a little abstract before they're, before they're done. I'm curious from the consumer side of things, um, you mentioned uh, the word emotion a couple of times, and I'm, I'm curious about how much of a role instinctive emotion among, among users plays and, and, and how that insight affects your work. It, it affects it greatly. I think that um, the, the, the work that I've done that has been kind of the most kind of stimulating has been where we've started off and in, in, in kind of understanding those really instinctive emotions that people have, those, those foundational emotions and um, creating the tools to discover that is always something that's um, really, really exciting. Um, and seeing that kind of well up, whether it's through um, diary studies or through kind of um, collaging exercises or <clears throat> working with, uh, with, with people within uh, focus group settings where you are testing concepts and really seeing which words, which ideas, which phrases really stimulate um, visceral kind of reactions in people. And, and you know, we, we have some, some methods that I've used with, with my partners in the past where it's a very iterative process at times. You, know, you, can, you can get those instinctive ideas through, through collaging, et cetera, and, and through kind of those diary studies. But, but then as you go along in the process, there are these opportunities to really finesse and heighten uh, the impact of the concept that you're developing in a kind of in a very iterative way, um, so that you get that first germ of an idea and you 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 latch onto it and you can kind of grow it and expand it um, such that it can get to a point that it will allow you to truly accelerate. Uh, the adoption of a um, of a technology or product brand or service. Yeah, and I would, you're you're leading me right into the next territory because you and I have talked so many times about that that intersection of technology and human behavior and and the the work that you do to uh, accelerate the adoption of technology. What are the things that you are you know, noticing that people consistently expect and desire when it comes to adopting technology? I, I think that really depends on the different groups of people and different cohorts of people. For sure, I think that uh, the technology, technology is exciting to some of us and to some people. And there are those early adopters who love to go out and try the latest thing. You know, there are probably people within companies who love to go out and implement the newest technology for their company. But I think that 
for many of us, technology is very intimidating. Uh, and it's intimidating on multiple levels uh, as it involves many different types of risk. There's, there's financial risk, you know, um, there's the, you know, the, uh, trying to get an understanding of, of is, is this investment going to, going to pay off, whether you're a business or whether you're a consumer? Um, is, is the risk greater than just staying with the status quo? There's the risk of using up your time as a consumer. You know, how long is it going to take me to get up to speed with this thing? Is it going to unravel all the hard work that I've done over the last, I don't know how many years to, to, to get to where I am? Um, what's it going to do in terms of my emotional energy? Is it going to sap my emotional energy? Am I going to embarrass myself because I'll have to go to someone else to ask them for help? Um, how will I be perceived by my peers or by other people? So I think that, that though technology is exciting and, um, and unrelenting, it, oft, it, also, it also, there are obviously a lot of barriers there and a lot of um, fears and, um, and that, that consumers and users are kind of associate with adopting adopting these new technologies and so um and so as as designers and product developers we can easily get carried away um with our own kind of visions and our own creativity and and our own conviction that this is this is the right thing to do um, but it's important to put in a, the checks and the balances basically to make sure that we're listening to consumers and kind of understanding what those fears and what those hesitations might be uh, that they may have along the way. Wow, it's so it's so interesting to hear you talk about all that because it, we always think about technology, a lot of us who are in the kind of business and work that we do as being exciting and that people should want this. And, and you're in fact pointing out all of the, the empathy that you must have for consumers and users as you develop these technologies so that you can address those, those uh, concerns and, and things along the way. What, I, what I, do you... I, actually, I, that's, a, that's a great point. And I, I, I think that one of the, the, the um, things that, I, that always strikes me when I'm in working in technology and with technology companies is, is how easily it is for us to take for granted our competency and our fluency with technology and with, with the new. And, um, and this is even more so, I, I'd say, with, um, with the kind of uh, millennial or digital natives who have grown up with technology. Um, but uh, but, but it's, it's definitely a, a common theme that... Um, the people within technology companies don't realize uh, how adept they are at at dealing with the new and at coping with the new and coping with these situations. So interesting to hear you talk about this. I'm curious uh, when it comes to creating limbic sparks, those moments when emotional motivation meets brand desire. What do you believe are the best ways that product designers should be thinking about creating limbic sparks? 
What's really important, or one of the things that I'd, I'd, I'd want designers to really be paying attention to as they work around their products and as they work with marketing teams and marketing teams work with product designers is to really think about um, what those pillars are behind the brand, what that promise is behind the brand, and then to extrapolate that out into what are the reasons to believe and and think about how do you manifest those reasons to believe in the product more overtly. Um, and then the opportunity there is to really take the, um, take the advancements that we've seen in, in materials and technologies in terms of what they can do and how prices have come down um, to be able to see how they can manifest themselves through different senses through uh, tactile senses, through kinetic feedback, through different sounds that are better orchestrated, through, through scent even, uh, so that we can really find ways of connecting with those consumers through all the five senses. And how does that tie back in a logical way, in a philosophical way to, to those um, core pillars and, and, and that, that core brand promise? I love what you've just talked about as it relates to sensory stimulation and, and so much of that is rooted in our, in our instinctive emotional responses. Why do you believe that some brands are still neglecting that power of emotion and, and emotional insights in their approach to designing for their brand? I don't necessarily know because I haven't been in those companies, but my gut tells me that, um, that there is a pressure to really think about the product and selling widgets versus crafting an experience and an activity. And that um, there are opportunities within many companies really to take a step back and to uh, not necessarily think about, well, how does this product get better? Um, how, or even how, how do we design and develop the next generation of this product? But what does our brand mean to people? What are we solving for people emotionally? Um, what are their uh, burdens and fears and desires as they go about this activity? And, and stepping back and thinking about it within a broader, a broader context. And I think it's when you start doing that, that you have this uh, chance to uh, really redefine the experience that you're developing, which means that you get to redefine that product that you're developing and that you can get to layer in um, those emotional trigger points that will create that more meaningful connection with a consumer and with a user. Fantastic. As a brand and product design leader who has as much experience as you do, what is it that you know now that you wish you knew years ago and perhaps that others in your shoes who are younger can learn from? Certainly when I started my career, I, I certainly enjoyed creating cool stuff a lot, right? And of, um, and, and of having that, kind of vision of design, especially coming out of um, 
the United Kingdom in the in the 1980s, which was kind of heralded design very much in its kind of physical manifestation. As I've continued on my career, I've really come to enjoy um, the opportunity to use measurement on a continual basement basis, both on the kind of the macro level uh, with things like marketing mix and segmentations, et cetera, but also on, on a more uh, kind of tactical level of continually um, uh, checking in with consumers to make sure that the details of an experience are, are, are resonating with them. Another area that I think that um, it's really important for designers to understand how to create great experiences around a product and make sure that that product is usable on a day-to-day basis and that, and, that, um, and that we create solutions that cover all the use experiences that, um, that a consumer might have with a product. I think what's been really interesting to me is to discover that unfortunately, that isn't always what's going to ensure the early adoption of a product. And there are any number of experiences or doubts that people might have around a product that they've never used that has nothing to do with, um, or that might have little to do with or less to do with, with how they're using that product once they've had it for a while. And so I really encourage designers to and marketers as well to think about what are the elements of that product, that experience, that activity, um, and that te- technology that are preventing people from adopting it in the first place versus having a good experience when they when they've brought it into their home, and to make sure that that's addressed in the product, in the way that you communicate it upfront. And that very shortly after having brought that product into your life, that those doubts and fears are um, are met and addressed in the product. So, so that's one of the one of the big takeaways that I've had in the work that I've I've done over over the last few years. Wonderful advice that you're able to share with people, given your vast experience, Dominic. Thank you so much for joining me on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks. Oh, you're welcome. This is. Um, Really fun to talk about and think about these these questions. Thank you. For more, go to limbicsparks.com.